becoming more and more correlated. Even bonds are, are, are highly correlated with stocks now. Yeah, I think, look, I think there's a lot more, um, uh, if I say hot money in the markets in, uh, you know, one, because of the amount of um, cash out there that uh, there's not earning uh, a comfortable amount of interest in a bank account, um, plus uh, the, the emergence of a lot more re- access to markets uh, from the retail perspective, I think has a huge influence on volatility. Uh, watching the volatility index, we did see it, um, if I use the VIX as the benchmark, uh, it did jump. Uh, and that's one you should watch. It went from 18% to 29%, back to 22%. So there's a lot of volatility clearly inherent in the market, and this is across asset classes. I think if you strip out the cryptocurrencies for the week, it hasn't been that crazy. Uh, it's really the cryptos that have taken the attention. Uh, and, you know, if you look at Bitcoin, for instance, you know, it's dropped like a stone, but it's still up 22 23% for the year. Uh, and I think as a new asset class, it's really trying to establish some sort of, um, you know, uh, firm base from which to you know, uh, maintain its level of value. And I think that debate is now going on with all of the news on crypto. But generally speaking, you're right. I think volatility is driven a lot by um, the amount of access that the retail market has. And um, uh, often the lack of news or the lack of real news is the reason that drives this volatility. Toby, thanks very much indeed once again for your, for your update this Friday morning. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Asian stock markets are moving further ahead on the final day of trading for this week. The ASX 200 in Australia up half a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is up 0.9%. Over in South Korea, the Cosby also up 0.9% and futures markets indicating a gain of about 0.4% for the Hang Seng later on this morning. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil strengthening a little bit at $65.25 a barrel, but gold is sliding a little as well at $1,876 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening all this week. Do have a great weekend. Join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock for uh, Money Talk. Do please also stay tuned for Back Chats with Hugh Chiverton and Danny, Danny Gittings in just a moment. Weather forecast for today, very hot apart from a few isolated showers. Sunny periods during the day, a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees. Going to be very hot apart from a few showers during the weekend and also early next week. The very hot weather warning is in force. It's 31 degrees right now, 75% relative humidity. 8.32 and a half. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half hour news. A ceasefire has officially come into effect in Israel and Gaza, bringing an end to 11 days of bloody conflict that claimed almost 250 lives. The deal was brokered by Egypt. The BBC's Paul Adams is in Jerusalem. We understand that Egyptian officials will be arriving in Gaza and in Israel fairly soon to discuss the fine print and clearly those negotiations will be important. But the bottom line is that the two sides have agreed to stop these exchanges that have been going on for 11 days. Of course none of that addresses the fundamental underlying issues between Israel and the Palestinians and unless those are addressed it is a racing certainty that at some point in the future we will be here again. Canada's immigration ministry says its new immigration pathway for Hong Kong residents has received nearly 6,000 applications since it was launched three months ago. The Canadian government eased visa rules in response to the national security law to make it easier for Hong Kong people to live and work in Canada. Under the new rules, any Hong Kong resident who's graduated from a Canadian university in the past five years can apply to work for up to three years. Those with equivalent foreign credentials are also eligible. 
New research shows the Arctic is warming much faster than expected. The findings suggest that over the coming decades, sea ice may disappear during the summer months. The BBC's Risto Puka reports. The latest figures paint an alarming picture. Since the early 70s, temperatures in the Arctic have gone up three times faster than the global average. This will have repercussions for wildlife in the region, but there will also be geopolitical consequences. The findings were presented at a meeting of the Arctic Council in Reykjavik, where the two biggest members, Russia and the United States, already clashed over a series of issues. The loss of summer ice and the consequent opening of new sea routes and improved access to underwater resources will mean the competition will only increase. The Duke of Cambridge has launched a stinging criticism of the BBC over what he called its woeful incompetence in investigating complaints about the way its journalist, Martin Bashir, secured an interview with his mother, Princess Diana. Prince William said his mother had been deceived by the reporter. The BBC's Johnny Diamond has more. Lord Dyson's findings, says Prince William, are extremely concerning. He spoke of how lurid and false claims played on his mother's fears and fueled paranoia, how the BBC displayed woeful incompetence, covered up what it knew and was evasive to the media. The deceitful way the interview was obtained, he says, substantially influenced what his mother said. What saddens him most, he says, is that had the BBC properly investigated the complaint raised in 1995, his mother would have known that she had been deceived. She was failed by leaders at the BBC, he says, who looked the other way. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Hugh Chewett and your co-host today. Danny Gittings. Danny, good morning to you. Good morning. Today we're talking about vaccines for the young and COVID-19 in Taiwan. The government says that it will consider allowing younger children to receive COVID-19 vaccines as long as this proved to be scientifically safe. At the moment, those aged 16 and above are able to get the BioNTech vaccine, while people aged 18 and above can take the Sinovac. But in the United States, authorities are allowing children as young as 12 to receive BioNTech jabs. What do we know about the safety limits for the vaccine? How important is it to vaccinate young people? And after the case of a four-year-old boy is deemed positive, spoiling our clean COVID record, where do we stand on social distancing and on opening up to the mainland? We want to hear your thoughts. You can comment on our Facebook page. That's Backchat on RTHK Radio. You can email bankchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your messages. Uh, or you can call us on 233-88266. That's 233-88266. And after 9.15, as I say, we're discussing COVID numbers uh, in Taiwan. Once again, I email bankchat at rthk.hk. Uh, a few uh, comments uh, from listeners uh, to uh, start off with. Uh, on the question of, uh, uh, with the subject line LBQ, Andrew Kay says, uh, he had earlier said, can someone explain why the majority of us have to bend to suit the concerns of sexual minority groups? Uh, Andrew Kay says, I get called a guaylo routinely, but I don't have a hissy fit about it. Mr Pink says, on the subject of incentivising locals to get vaccinated, in addition to offering a lump sum cash handout, the government can consider copying New York State, which is offering its residents free lottery tickets with the maximum payout of $5 million. Given Hong Kong Hong Kongers uh, penchant for lotteries, reflected in the $34.6 million turnover in last Tuesday's Mark 6 sales, this can only help boost our daily vaccination rate, which yesterday dipped 
below 24,000 compared with the seven-day moving average of 27,661. That is uh, from uh, m- that is from Mr. Pink uh, and uh, Jay. Uh, that's uh, June says. Dear Bankshire, allow me to make a small suggestion for your programme. In your Facebook write-up for the day's programme, uh, please add the co-host and the full list of guests scheduled for Bankchat for the day. I believe that's the current practice for the programmes before and after yours. Thank you very much. Thanks for the suggestion. Unfortunately, we could, we could confirm the, the co-host. We could probably put the co-host. But the guests, we really, we really don't know until, uh, until, until, our produ- until the programme starts. Until our producer, Yuki, says it's, uh, <laughs> it's fixed, it's done. Uh, uh, they're really... Um, sometimes, you know, they're they're confirming or or dropping out or whatever at eleven o'clock at night. So yeah, it's a it's but skin of our teeth every or, day or even eight o'clock in the morning or so. even eight o'clock in the morning sometimes. Yeah, but thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, we'll we'll add the we'll add the co-host. Uh, joining us um, now for the discussion we have with us uh, Professor Lao Yu Long, who's chair professor of paediatrics in the Department of Paediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at the University of Hong Kong and chairman of the scientific committee on vaccine preventable disease. Dr. Arasina Ma, president of the Hong Kong Public Doctors Association and Dr Sarah Borwine, who's a Canadian physician who trained at the London School of Hygiene. Uh, Professor Lau, good morning. Hi, good morning, Danny. Uh, um, now, the Department of Paediatrics at Hong Kong U is conducting a study, isn't it? Into, yes. Uh, uh, yes. Um, and you actually, you're using both BioNTech and I think also Sinovac on um, children. This study is still in its early stages. Does that mean that um, we're going to have to wait a long time for the results of this study before we can consider extending the uh, vaccination in, in Hong Kong to 12 to 15 year olds? Oh, not at all. I could answer your question in two ways. Uh, first, uh, in fact, the response uh, is actually picking up. Uh, we've already had two rounds on Saturday for the Beyond Tech, that is on the 15th and the 8th. And tomorrow will be the third round. And already on the book, there are about 100 uh, young adolescents with their parents agree to join. And we have already vaccinated, uh, well, uh, well, nearly 40, 36 something. Uh, so I think uh, we are on target for uh, Beyond Tech uh, by next Saturday, probably we'll reach about 100, 120. And then for the Coronavac, uh, because uh, it's, uh, it takes a bit more time to warm up, but at least now we've got about 30 on the book, and we will start the first round of vaccination for them uh, coming Sunday, that is on the 30th. We deliberately divide them on Saturday and Sunday so there will be no mix-up, because they all come to the Hong Kong U Managed uh, CVC, so, so the response so far is a positive. I, I understand that, but if this study, presumably, you, you need to watch them over a period and see yeah, whether there's any side effects. So right, because there are two doses. So, um, of course, uh, by end of June, we should have given all the children the second dose for BioNTech, and then we need about, you know, about uh, you know, four weeks to get the blood sample to measure all the responses. So I think the preliminary results should be out by July. And then for uh, Coronavac, it will perhaps maybe a month later. But still, I think the issue is not about the data because the government, as I said uh, yesterday, and it's been sort of really widely sort of reported, the bottleneck is at the company rather than uh, on us. As long as they give the data and the, all the sort of information that we need, the committee will meet and we'll uh, look at it very, very, very expeditiously. So there's really no delay from that point of view. It's just a matter of time. All the young people in Hong Kong will be offered the choice of either one of the two vaccines in time. In time? Uh, yes. 
I thought the correct. So I'm sure I'm completely mistaken. So correct me, please. I, 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 my impression was that the, the certainly the phase three trials were done where you got a uh, hundred people who were vaccinated with a particular vaccine and a hundred people who weren't, yes. and then you looked at the infection rate yes, and you yes, compared yes, what yes, you yes, compared yes, the vaccinated yes. group with the infected. But presumably you can't do that in Hong Kong because it's so no, low we anyway. Don't need to do that. Uh, because that has been done already. Uh-huh. Uh, say, for example, for the BioNTech, uh, the 2,000 children of that age category, not 11, is 12 and onwards, uh, about 1,000 had the vaccine, 1,000 had the placebo, and it's, uh, it's very good. It prevented up to 100%. You can't get better than 100%. And then in terms of the reactogenicity, that is the fever, the chills, the fatigue, uh, is a little bit more than the, the slightly older cohort, that is uh, around 16 to 29 years, and it's about two or three percent more. So I think that is still tolerable. Um, and then the company is now uh, already uh, sort of got the go-ahead from FDA and then the CDC. Sorry, so, so those, those, those are tests that were done outside Hong Kong? Those oh, yes, of course. Okay. And, and when you talk about the reactogenicity, that's the, that would lead to, 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 to side effects or something? That would no, be the no, sort of, no. Yeah. Uh, that is the things that you will have. I don't know whether you've had it or not, uh, <laughs> Daniel or in Hugh, because uh, a proportion of them will get some fever or fatigue mm-hmm. or soft injection site uh, swelling, but that won't last more than a couple of days. Sure, but that's, uh, the, that's the side effects. That's what I meant, the, yes, the, the, yes, the adverse. Um, yeah, uh, side effects. Yeah, yeah. sure. Of yes, I, I'm actually quite... And then for the CoronaVac, uh, again, they've got data and we've looked at it already because it's circulated in webinars and so on. It's about 400. So the Beijing uh, sort of equivalent of the FDA, CFDA already mandated them to increase the number to over 1,000. So, so they're s- actively doing it now. Sorry, so Priscilla, so why do you need to do a study as well? Oh, this is because about confidence. So I think uh, the bottleneck is not about the availability of vaccine. I've mentioned it multiple times. We've got enough doses for the whole population. Uh, the crux is the trust. The crux is the doubt. So we must address this. And I think uh, with this, uh, we might be able to show to the Hong Kong community uh, that, in fact, there are a group of young people and their parents are very actively for the vaccination. So indeed, over the last uh, couple of weeks, I've talked to, I, I, I personally talked to every single one of them, the children and the parents, and they're very proactive and they're very pro-vaccine. Uh, so I've suggested perhaps uh, by the end of this study, hopefully in, I don't know, July, August, uh, if we've got 125 for each vaccine, we'll have a get-together, but of course we need good permission how to do this get-together and then announce in concert a few hundred of these uh, young people and their parents to say, come on, Hong Kong, wake up. Please get us out of this, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, sort of a pandemic, at least in Hong Kong, and show the world that we can do it. So I think that is more important than anything. And because this is personal, they are all stories. They are not numbers. We are all talking about numbers. I do believe personal story and the narrative is much more important than just figures. Figures, of course, are important, but lacking the personal experience and narratives, nothing really work in life. Okay. Uh, Tim, there's quite a few emails coming in, as ever. Tim says, uh, Dear Backchat, when will the government wake up to the fact that it needs to enforce COVID vaccination? The alternative is a semi-permanent state of isolation from the rest of the world, closed borders with China and the demise of our hotel and airline industries. Public awareness campaigns have failed. Vaccination rates remain shamefully low. The time has come to enforce a vaccine passport system. Uh, after a three-month grace period, evidence of vaccination should be required for entry to all public buildings, entry to public transportation, 
hubs, shopping malls and wet markets. Stop pandering and start leading. That comes uh, from uh, Tim. And Mike says, uh, yep, that Mike says, uh, you have probably made up your minds on whether or not to jab children with an experimental medical device, so anything one says is a waste of breath. If you've been paying attention, this vaccine debate stroke decision has become less of a choice and more focused on personal attacks. Tell me if I'm wrong, but the attackers seem to be the ones that have taken the hype and the jab. I say hype only in a true scientific realm. It is still an emergency measure with no FDA approval. Doesn't that seem odd to you? Millions have taken it. And for the short term, it does seem relatively safe and somewhat effective, in inverted commas. Not as effective as advertised, but still somewhat effective. Just ask yourself before you plunge, why the delay in FDA approval, or even why they haven't adjusted the change of emergency use status? Do you trust your government? That should give you the answer to wise choice or not. That's uh, from Mike. Also joining us, Dr Erasino Ma, the president of the Hong Kong Public Doctors Association. Dr Ma, good morning. Um, so what do you make of that? Are, are listeners suggesting that uh, there should um, be a much more concerted a campaign in terms of um, requiring people to be vaccinated before they can enter public buildings in Hong Kong? Um, personally, I object this idea. I think this is a, a really the problems about equalities and ethics. Um, first of all, we know that there is a certain group of people that are not fit for vaccine, especially for some elderly and those with chronic illnesses. So um, how to handle their right to entering the public premises and using the public uh, facilities. Another, on the other hand, uh, the government always say that they respect the choice of people whether to take the jab or not. So if you put on all those measures, that means that the uh, uh, rights have been jeopardized for their choice of not making the vaccine, even though they uh, agree to uh, follow other social isolation or uh, um, hygiene for protection. So I think... Um, yes, um, although we should uh, promote the vaccination, but um, we cannot uh, stop people, especially those non-infected, non-contagious people, from getting into those public facilities. And especially if they are, uh, agree to take on certain protective measures. And we've seen the survey that even in your profession, in the healthcare sector, the vaccination rate is, is very low indeed. Um, I, I, according to the figures provided by the hospital authority, around maybe let's say 20-30% of our colleagues have been injected. Um, uh, I would say that it may not be as high as others uh, Western countries because we don't have a, a large outbreak in our sectors yet. Um, but compared with uh, the vaccination rate with uh, flu vaccine and so on, it is relatively comparable. Uh, I think there may be several reasons. First of all, seems uh, similar to the rest of the community. Uh, our colleagues uh, still, still have some doubts uh, about the vaccines and maybe some of the government issues. And secondly, um, it made the arrangement of, of hospital authority uh, actually not favor our colleagues to take the vaccine. For example, you can only take the uh, coronavirus vaccine inside hospital. If you want to take the BioNTech vaccine, you need to go to one of the community health centers as the rest of the public. So for a PC colleagues like us, if you want to take the BioNTech vaccine, you may have no chance of to arrange it. What would, your, what would your advice be, as a, as a practicing doctor, to uh, parents, for example, who are considering whether or not to have their children vaccinated? Uh, first of all, uh, I'm not a pediatrician. As most of the patients I see is elderly. Mm. But uh, yes, I, I do uh, sometimes encounter some friends with kids and so on. Um, I think uh, I agree with Professor Lau 
seems that with the data we have right now, the vaccine is relatively safe for that group of children, and uh, it may be also effective as well. However, uh, I think it is still uh, uh, the choice uh, between the parents as well as the adolescent. You must respect the adolescent as well. Um, for most of the adolescents, they have, don't have um, uh, 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 chronic illness like hypertension, heart disease, and so on. It seems uh, uh, even more safer than those elderly or those uh, uh, middle-aged uh, uh, group. Uh, so, um, but on the other hand, when uh, the family consider whether to vaccinate their kids, they will think. But it seems that even the young population, they get infected. They are not that symptomatic. Of course, when we talk about vaccinated the young group, uh, actually the aim is uh, try to uh, vaccinate as many people as possible in the community. So even some elderly, they cannot be vaccinated uh, if the surveillance of the disease is really, really low in the community. Uh, they will get protection as well. Dr. Borwine is also with us, Sarah Borwine, a Canadian physician. Uh, good no, morning. Uh, I think she's joining after the. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, she's, she's, she's joining off tonight. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Uh, uh, some uh, more uh, emails. Uh, Anthony says Is there a negative correlation between the vaccination and infection numbers uh, in Hong Kong? Dr. Ma, that seems to me, and that's what you were saying, wasn't it? You were saying that there's a low take up rate among doctors because of the low uh, infection rate, basically. I think it is more or less like um, like a a, 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 a a common human character. When you don't see the threat that much, of the, the initiation and motivation for you to take uh, the vaccine is lower. So, uh, yes, yes, I don't want to say it is a negative correlation, but it seems to be one of the common thoughts and beliefs, especially when I discuss it for some of my colleagues, they some of them really don't really think that they will get the infection because our hospital environment is relatively safe and they also um, uh, have a very good social hygiene and they, uh, they may also practice some very strict social uh, 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 isolation and so on. One more comment. This is from Jay, who says, since many of us have sold our soul and have put a medical records on the government computer database for any doctor or hospital, we should be able to go direct to the clinic and let a professional doctor look at our records before we have the jab, instead of going to see a doctor, private doctor, at more expense. That's from Jay. But Dr. Ma, you can do that, can't you? You can go to a government doctor. Anyone can go to a government doctor and, and, and say, should I look at my records? Should I take the jab? Um, actually, um, everyone, uh, for, let's say, uh, if you this, uh, of course, for the uh, specialty outpatient clinic in the hospital, you need to have a, a prior appointment and so on. Uh, no walk-in cases, but for some general outpatient clinic uh, uh, that's run by the government, you can really uh, walk in and maybe book an appointment to, to have some uh, uh, advice uh, or assessment for the, your fitness of vaccination. But um, it also depends whether you have people previous checkup or previous uh, consultation with us or not. Uh, <laughs> Professor Lau, Professor you, you, you were saying earlier that the, um, the, your data is suggesting there's a slightly higher possibility of side effects among children. Um, maybe I should declare an interest here. My, my own daughter's actually currently off school with um, mild side effects from uh, a COVID vac vaccination. You were saying that... The, 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 that is uh, for BioNTech. For BioNTech, uh, yes. BioNTech uh, got all the data for us uh, to look at. Uh, so if your daughter is uh, of the age category, then the chance of her having a bit of fever or chills or fatigue, maybe two or three more percentage points than 
the 16 to 29. But this, this will pass, don't worry. This will pass. Don't yeah, yeah, no, no, I know. I've been told that already. But um, would you, um, she's 16, would you expect that then the, the, the chances of side effects increases as the children become younger, like a 12-year-old would face uh, uh, proportion? Um, I think uh, we cannot divide the age groups into such uh, small segments. Uh, I think we could uh, sort of say these are young adolescents and then these are, you know, primary school children. So that will be uh, more reasonable. So I think the 16 years old will not materially very different from 11 or 12 year old. So I think that is a more uh, reasonable uh, categorization. Yeah. All right. TC says, uh, what are the ethical and moral implications on signing on children 12 to 18 for this vaccine testing? Are there financial benefits or how do you decide if the parents understand the fine print terms and conditions? What happens if there's an adverse reaction? Oh, Who I could answer this question. <laughs> Please do. Would yes. you be able to let me answer this? Yes, of course. Oh, wonderful. Right. Uh, because this study adheres to the most stringent high standard, so I need to interview all the parents and the children to get the consent. Uh, before that, I have to go through a very meticulous process with my research nurse, letting them know everything about uh, the vaccine. Uh, they have at least two or three times, uh, like last night with a, a Zoom, to answer their queries after a talk. And then on the day of the vaccination, they personally see me one, by one family by one family and can answer all their queries. And then the children need to give the assent, all right? They cannot give consent. So for the child to be vaccinated, both the parent and the child need to give the consent and the assent. So there are actually at least two forms that I need to go through meticulously. One from the parent to give the consent for the underage, and then the underage need to sign the assent, all right? So that is the highest standard. So in a way, we actually engage the young adolescents in the discussion process so they make their own decision and all the ones that i have interviewed so far they are very pro yeah. vaccination because they understand without that they cannot get back to their normal life they cannot get back to the sports they love they cannot go to like italy to participate in some events and even another tennis star player cannot go to america to participate in one of the top you know Competition. Another one is, is, is a golf player, and so on and so forth. So I think uh, for the anti-vax community, they can make their own choice and then let the other community members to make their own choice. So that's why I always mention have choice is most important. You choose whether you get your vaccine or not, and you choose which one you get. And in fact, our clinical uh, study here is to try to really promulgate this whole idea of choice and let the community be together. We do not vilify the other side of the society. The society needs to come together. And even when the government said, yes, we will lower the age down to whatever, 12, my proposal, in fact, is after the examination by end of June, we should engage all the schools, the secondary schools, the PTA, the Parents Teachers Association, you know, all the religious leaders who are actually looking after their schools, make sure this is a bottom-up event and let the children and the teachers and the parents to have seminars in the school after examination, one or two. Let them debate why we need the vaccine or why, why you do not want the vaccine. Respect different views and then let them choose. And then pediatricians like Pediatric Society can play a role. The Federation can play a role. I want this society 
to be understanding, tolerant, and come together again, and don't vilify the other side when they do not hold the same view as you. All right? I respect the anti-facts. So if they don't want to get it, they don't get it. Doesn't matter. Because by all intent and purposes, they will constitute about 10%, 20% of the community. It depends on which country and region. So, um, so I don't know whether I've made it clear or not. So this study is not about just the immediate side effect or even the long-term, three years immune response, not only antibody, but long living T cells. But it's about community spirit coming together, argue in a concerted manner that we need to be tolerant. We need to respect different opinions. Do- okay. Let the society go ahead. Don't dilly-dally again. Dr. Ma, I know you're you're going in a a couple of moments. Do do you agree? Um, I totally agree with what uh, Professor Lau said, especially the spirit and the vibe about that. uh, Respect the choice of different groups of people with different sense and a a fair chance for um, argument and debate. But um, it seems that it may be... uh, uh, it can happen in some parts of the society, but uh, it may not able to um, take place in some parts of society. For example, so some uh, uh, frontline workers, some many workers, they seem to be suppressed by their employer and so on. So there, the, the fact is there is inequality uh, 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 happening in our society. So I think besides promoting the vaccines, we also need to look into that and an ethical issue. I agree with you totally, Dr. Mark. Do I have a chance to answer back that issue? Uh, no, you don't. I don't. <laughs> okay. do after you, the news. You do after the news. Hold that thought for uh, three okay, minutes. Okay, thank we'll, you. We'll get back to the discussion. Say goodbye to, for the moment to uh, Dr. Arasina Ma. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, President of the Hong Kong Public Doctors Association. So another, another uh, doctor will be joining us as well after nine, and we'll be hearing again from uh, Professor Lau, we hope. We're also going to be hearing about uh, developments uh, from uh, Taiwan with that uh, spike uh, in cases there. What's going on. The weather forecast very hot today, apart from a few isolated showers. Sunny period, temperatures up to about 33 degrees. 30 degrees the latest readings with a relative humidity of 75% and a very hot weather warning now in place. Also wanted cooperation on military matters, which the council remit currently excludes. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. Back chat this Friday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about uh, uh, vaccinations for uh, young people and uh, COVID developments uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, we're also going to, we could also maybe return to the, the case of that four-year-old boy who's uh, it's now been decided was positive for, for COVID-19 uh, in Hong Kong, uh, spoiling our clean COVID record. So what are the implications for that on uh, social distancing measures and on opening up to the mainland? Uh, later, we're going to be uh, talking to uh, Ross Feingold about how things are going uh, in Taiwan. Uh, as ever, uh, we want you to join in. You can call us on 233-88266, talk to our experts uh, directly, or you can email backchat at rthk.hk, or you can go to our Facebook page. That's backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Okay, uh, as ever, a lot of comments. Uh, Howard on uh, Facebook says, the government should drop the mask requirement and up the risk for the science deniers, the fence sitters, and those who whine that they're more afraid of the vaccine side effects than getting the virus. There is a grand total of 47 people who are hospitalised right now with COVID and only two of those cases are critical. Our hospitals can certainly handle many more should there be uh, an outbreak. Um, 
Anthony says, in the good old days, we just followed the Imperial British Administration to take the smallpox vaccine without staging a discussion forum. And kids didn't even have the choice to say no to the smallpox vaccine. Isn't now a testament to an increased democracy uh, in Hong Kong? Question mark. That's uh, from uh, Anthony. Uh, and uh, Din says, what happened to the reported imminent WHO approval of Sinovac for emergency vaccination? Uh, CW says, Hong Kong are at the bottom of the class in terms of vaccination rate. Patrick Nip is in charge of the programme and also the 160,000 civil servants. How many of the civil service have been vaccinated? How many doctors have been vaccinated? Hong Kong has everything going for it with apparently a supply of 2 million vaccines waiting to go out of date. Why won't Hong Kong people get vaccinated? You're putting yourself and others at risk loud shout out hong kong get vaccinated introduce a weekly 10 million dollar lottery hong kong's current grade is d minus not a pass that is from uh cw uh we're joined by uh, uh dr uh, lao yu ling who's chair professor of pediatrics in the department of pediatrics and adolescent medicine at the university of hong kong chairman of the scientific committee on vaccine preventable disease and also Dr. Sarah Borwine, excuse me, who's a Canadian physician who trained at the London School of Hygiene now as well. Professor Lau, uh, just before uh, nine o'clock, you were about to uh, respond to uh, uh, Arasina Mar, I think, who we were also talking to in the first part, uh, and took account about the, uh, the, the social implications of the vaccination programme. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Because the vaccine has always been known as the best tool to address social inequality. Uh, because once the vaccine is uh, given, then it will address the rich-poor gap. This is very evident uh, from all the experience that we've got in the third world, or now we call less resource regions. Uh, when they have access, and if the government is really responsible enough to get the universal vaccination, the infant mortality across the social class will drop. And one of the less resource countries who has been doing well relatively well in the public health measure is Bangladesh, you know. Um, however, if another country hasn't got such a very responsive and very sort of wide coverage of their pediatric population, then it's those who are less resourced, the, the, the less privileged, the poorer segments of the children had an enormous infant mortality rate, under five uh, mortality rate. So in terms of addressing social inequality, vaccination must be one of the key tools to use. But you need to use it wisely. You have to use it in a non-discriminatory way, a universal type of approach. And indeed, the COVID vaccine now is such tools. Like, for example, now we all understand India and many other countries are going through hell. And you can guess the more sort of, uh, sort of deprived you are, the higher the chance that you are not going to get out of this um, sort of outbreak. The richer you are, you might even fly off to some other places. So, but if you get the vaccination in, then whether you're rich or you're poor, you get the same level of uh, protection. So I think vaccination must be one of the key tools to address social inequality, and we must embrace that concept. Okay, we're also joined by Dr. Sarah Borwin, who is a Canadian physician who trained at the London School of Hygiene and currently a um, family doctor in Hong Hi, Kong. Hi, good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Professor Lau. <laughs> oh, it's coming you long, don't worry, Sarah. <laughs> we don't need to be too formal. We, we must establish person-to-person -person type of relationship and connection because that is how we fail uh, in our vaccination 
uh, roll out and drive uh, in a lot of our social relationship nowadays. Okay, uh, Dr. Borin, on on that issue of the uh, low vaccination rate in Hong Kong, what are you hearing from your own patients when you talk talk to them? Uh, A lot of hesitancy about taking the vaccination? that, uh, you know, uh, the expatriate population is very keen to get vaccinated for a couple of reasons. One, they see it as a ticket to being able to travel home at some point. And also, they see that their friends and relatives at home are desperate for vaccination, and they realize that they're incredibly lucky with the access and the rollout that we have here. But we do see that there's a lot of hesitancy in the, more, in the local population. And what, the interesting thing I'm also starting to see is a lot of anxiety in the community about from people who are vaccinated about the people who won't get vaccinated so that started to appear in the last few weeks so that's starting to really cause anxiety it's like i can get vaccinated i'm doing my bit but unless other people get vaccinated we're not making the progress we need to make so how is that manifesting so i mean we've seen actually uh, the occasional perhaps slightly ham-fisted attempts to um, really um, boycott businesses where the staff aren't vaccinated and so on. I mean, uh, how, how, how are you seeing that, that later trend manifesting itself among your patients? Well, I'm more so because I'm, I'm seeing them as patients. I'm more seeing it manifest as anxiety, uh, people coming in with, with actual anxiety problems around this, feeling hopeless, feeling like we have this tool that we can get to get out of this pandemic, to get back to normal life, and we're not using it, and that makes people very anxious. So I'm seeing it from a more clinical point of view. I know that there's some things going on in the community, as you said, about people trying to boycott, etc. But what I'm seeing is that it's a clinical response. What, what's your What's your position on uh, vaccinating children? Uh, I mean, we, uh, Professor Lau, of course, uh, we've been talking to, is leading a study at Hong Kong U about that. Um, would, would you support uh, vaccinations for 12 to 15 year olds? Yes, I, yes, absolutely, I would, given that as long as, you know, the data support it, and so far the data in other places have, have clearly supported vaccinating teens. But they, do it in, they do it in Canada, don't they? They do it in Canada. I think they're doing it in Singapore now, certainly the U.S., I think Israel, a number of places are doing it. Uh, Professor Lau, I, I wonder if you've thought through the logistics of uh, if uh, vaccination is extended to 12 to 15-year-olds, how it's going to work. It, it would be likely to be in the summer holiday, wouldn't it? And uh, at the moment, uh, 16 to 18-year-olds, they go into vaccination centres by themselves without parents. Do, do you think that would be, still be the case for 12 to 15-year-olds? Uh, no, no, they need to get a... Yeah, they need parental appro- approval, but they, they, they're not, not accompanied by parents. Yeah, I think um, the way to... Um, I've been thinking about it over the last uh, few days. Uh, one um, way is to engage the young adolescent as stakeholders rather than a directive from the parents, uh, from authority, and so on. So uh, b- by the time they finish the exam, I think it's high time uh, for the Education Bureau and the PTA and so on, I've already mentioned, to organize seminars, uh, small groups, each class, and then they will go through a process and they understand what it is. And then, of course, if you engage the PTA's parents will be there, as well. Once uh, there's a kind of a consensus uh, arrived, maybe over 50% of the children in that school uh, really would want to get the vaccination because they assent to it and the parents consent to it after a very uh, sort, of a, sort of very detailed process to engage them, let them ask whatever they want to ask, the anxiety address and, and so on. Then that school, I think, married what we call an outreach program. Then the government uh, should send a team because each school, the secondary school, could be have hundreds, even thousands of, of, of students. And that would be a way of getting the community moving to 
together rather than like you come to me. Now it's the vaccination team go to them. And most of the parents that I have interviewed and the children, oh, wow, my God, just like yesterday, if they can come to the school, that is the best. And you could ask the schools and so on. To get the vaccination rate up, I think we must listen. We must listen to the community, the stakeholders. And we even have an ethnic minorities WhatsApp group. We actually engage the leaders of the ethnic minorities to see what they concern and so on. And it is reasonably successful now. So in order to get the vaccination rate up, we must engage the community segment by segment. We must mobilize the leaders. And a lot of the schools in Hong Kong are really run by religious bodies like you know the Catholic, the Protestants, the Buddhists and Muslim. Engage them and let them play a role. So it becomes everybody's business rather than your business or my business or government's business. This is the business of whole community coming together to get out of the pandemic. So this very wonderful tools to address social inequality will be used to its fullest. And I think that might be the plan if I have, you know, a say in the policy what to do. If you're so, talking about outreach to schools, sounds to me like you're talking about the next school year because you're already saying that sure, um, sure. approval's not going to come sure. through until you know, January. Some of the school will start in August and some will start in September. If you really want to be successful, uh, that is, I think, one of the ways to do. But of course, this way doesn't negate the other way. That means if you are a very pro-vaccine family, by all means, go to the CVC right away, all right? Go to your doctors right away. Um, of course, the other way is to busing them from the schools to the CVC. Uh, but that actually really generates other issues as well. You cannot start that type until you've got your school year start. And again, because you engage them, then the stakeholders, that is the children, the younger lessons and the parents, no, 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 I, we want to all go to that school for that particular day. So why wait for the school open in August, late August or early September? Then becomes their decision. They actually take charge. I think it's so important for the young people to feel they, they own this thing. They take ownership. They are in charge. They well, make the decision. So that is the point that I'm wanting to get through. But, but okay, but uh, Dr. Borwine, what, what, if, what if the children say no? Should you, should you override them? I mean, if they're like 12, 13... <laughs> of course not. <laughs> cannot. <laughs> well, the children, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, just in a family dynamic, how would you handle that? <laughs> Dr. Borwine. That we really need to engage the teens, and in fact, my my experience is that the teens really get it. They, you know, their lives have been turned upside down by this. Maybe they're not the ones who get very sick or die commonly from COVID nineteen, but their lives have been turned upside down by COVID, and they understand that vaccination is key to getting their lives back. And they also know that even if they don't get sick, they can make those they love sick, and that's a terrible burden to carry. And they also get that it's a community responsibility. So I, what I hear from teens is, you know, I think they're closer to their science education. They understand the science in general. It, it's the parents who tend to be hesitant, not the teenagers. But uh, Professor Lau's suggestion of uh, doing vaccination campaigns in schools, I, I'm not aware of other countries where that's happened. Hong Kong should take the lead, Hugh, Denny. We can do it. I, I, do you think there'll be some... I mean, schools already having a number of things imp imposed on them, national security, education, and so oh, on. Do you no, think... No, no, they, no, this no, is no, another... I already do other vaccinations. Yeah, I give you a successful example, because in the last two years, I'm 
sort of really pushing for the school outreach program for the flu vaccine. Uh, of course, it's not in secondary school, it's in primary school and in kindergartens over the last two or three years. And we managed to push the coverage rate from three or four years ago around 10 something percent to 68 percent for last year for primary school for the flu vaccine. Because it's convenient, the parents will need to sign a consent and then the vaccination team will go out and do the vaccination for the primary school children. So we've got success in the past for flu vaccine. That is an inactivated flu vaccine, all right? And that has been replicated in many countries, including United States, Canada, and so on. We must move the vaccination to the most convenient spot. We cannot just sit there. Okay. Uh, some more comments uh, on Facebook. TC, who I think is in Canada, says, uh, to the doctors who are against the policy of forbidding people to enter places without vaccination on the rationale that it's unfair to people who can't take the vaccine on medical grounds. Currently, masks are mandatory. People practically can't be outside their homes without it. But there are people who can't wear masks, such as health and behavioural reasons, as well as people unable to physically put on or remove a mask. Isn't the current mask policy in Hong Kong and other places in the world unfair to those? Why is one form of discrimination more acceptable than another? That's from uh, TC. Uh, Ali says, uh, please see the above document. I'd appreciate comments on this and has a link to a, uh, an article um, which is titled uh, Mass Vaccination, Urgent Questions on Vaccine Safety that Demand Answers from International Health Agencies, Regulatory Authorities, Governments and Vaccine Developers. Uh, the abstract says... Um, uh, despite progress on early multidrug therapy, the current mandate is to immunise the world population as quickly as possible. The lack of thorough testing in animals prior to clinical trials and authorisation based on safety data generated through trials that lasted less than three and a half months raised question regarding the safety of these uh, vaccines. Professor Lau, are you concerned? Um, um, uh, there's this group of doctors who produced this um, uh, I'm not quite sure who they are. Um, this group of people who have produced this, uh, this this comment, and it's one shared, you know, by a number of our listeners. They're just concerned that the trials uh, were were rushed through. That this is uh, done, you know. Uh, there's only there's only authorization for emergency treatment, uh, and uh, basically, uh, it's not safe. What would you say to uh, Ali and others? Yeah, of course, this is for emergency use. That's why there's so many layers of check and balance. Sort of surveillance system. There's a pharmacovigilance, and there will be a more or less a weekly update on all the what we call adverse events following immunization. And of course, the drug companies or the pharmaceutical that produce a vaccine need to supply safety data, worldwide global data, to all the health uh, sort of authority globally, not just to Hong Kong. You know, the FDA, the CFDA, the the, the EMA and so on and so forth. So, of course, this is emergency use. Otherwise, uh, we need not to put in so much effort to do it. And in order to make it safe and we can actually correct any mistake, just like the AstraZeneca Oxford U vaccine, and that is picked up. Of course, you could always argue, can it be picked up earlier? Yeah, of course, but it needs time to sort out all the data. And because of that surveillance system, now this vaccine has been limited to a certain age group. And in Hong Kong, because we've got adequate number of doses, we've decided not to use AstraZeneca. Initially, we've got these three vaccines. So it proves this system works. Because if you don't push it through emergency use, then you will see the whole of India, the whole of America, the whole of 
whatever country that cannot adhere to what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions go to hell. And when they emerge from hell, they can of course emerge from hell. But that at expense of millions of deaths, not just hundreds of thousands. We've got 3.3 million deaths already. But of course people said, no, so be it. We've got seven, whatever, billion people. These are small numbers. That is heartless, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so just some more comments to, to finish off. Din says, what is the Hong Kong situational position on COVID-19 rapid antibody test kits as UK? Uh, register for a antibody. This is from the UK, uh, from the government uh, UK website. Register for an antibody test kit to check if you've had coronavirus before. An antibody test is a blood test to check if you've had coronavirus before. Uh, the antibody test is a home test kit sent in the post. It's different from the tests to check if you have COVID-19 now. Uh, Dr. Borwine, do you know anything about that? Do, uh, well, I, I, I don't know about that directly, but I, I would say it brings up the topic of the fact that one of our issues in Hong Kong is that essentially no one here has had COVID, or hardly anyone. So we actually are like a dry forest with no level of community immunity. So doing antibody tests here, most people are going to find they haven't had it. And we are just waiting for some sparks to be thrown in from India or whatever to ignite the whole thing. Well, so this, we actually need yeah. vaccination just as much as anyone else. That may lead on to our to our second topic today, which is uh, Taiwan and catching up on the situation in Taiwan, which we'll get to uh, in just a moment. Just to finish off, uh, Emery says, schools, question mark, wishful thinking, hard line from the government, the only realistic way. Uh, and Sam says, what's most intriguing is that Republican Rand Paul telling Dr. Fauci to stop playing around with people's lives. There is a YouTube clip. Wonder what that means. Uh, and uh, Gene says, at the moment, the government is not showing any confidence in its vaccines. Incentivising is different from confidence. Opening social distancing to six people for the fully vaxxed just means they need to contract trace two people more gin restaurants. Quarantine to seven days makes no sense because the vax does not shorten the incubation period. Money incentives may help, but it does not demonstrate confidence. The fully vaxxed people should be allowed freedom of everything, including not wearing masks. The unvaccinated should be fully protected with all PPE, social distancing and quarantine measures. Even if a vaxxed person gets infected, they're either asymptomatic or mild. The government needs to show it has this confidence. That's from Jean. Many thanks to, to our guests this morning, to Professor Lau. Many thanks for joining us, Professor Lau. Lau Yu Lung, who's a Chair Professor of Paediatrics in the Department of Paediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at the University of Hong Kong, also Chairman of the Scientific Committee on Vaccine Preventable Diseases, and Dr Sarah Borwine. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, a Canadian physician who trained at the London School of Hygiene. Thanks very much in, indeed. And uh, to all those uh, who emailed as well, we wanted to turn finally today, uh, as mentioned, to uh, catch up on the situation uh, in uh, Taiwan. Uh, let's see, uh, 286 locally transmitted uh, infections uh, reported on Thursday, uh, 87 in, in, in Taipei. Um, this, uh, of course, coming uh, as a surprise to the place where uh, the infections rates were uh, extremely low, some of the lowest uh, in the world. Uh, the new cases bringing the lo total local total to 1,577 for the past uh, 10 days. Uh, Ross Feingold uh, joins us once again uh, on the line uh, from Taipei. Uh, he's the Business Development Director at Safe Pro Group, a travel security consultancy. Ross, good morning to you and thank you very much indeed for, for joining us on the line from Taipei. Um, yeah, so what's happening in, in Taiwan? This has come pretty much from the blue, hasn't it? 
Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a shock to a lot of people here, and, and frankly, also, as you alluded to, people outside of Taiwan who had held up Taiwan as, as a model uh, for how to uh, manage the risk from from COVID-19. Although I, I, my own view is that that was a bit of, of a, a misunderstanding, I think, because you know, Taiwan, as some other places did very early in February, March of 2020, imposed some very strict entry requirements so uh, citizens could return, residents uh, could return. Uh, but, but there were quarantine requirements. And the contact tracing is very good. Look, there, there's nothing magical about that. And, and those are measures that uh, obviously some places like the United States would never have imposed. Uh, but uh, over time, uh, they, they've relaxed a bit the restrictions on, on, on entry. Uh, and uh, you know, that kind of opens the door to uh, notwithstanding people may have gotten a test before flying in and they may have quarantined upon arrival. We know from all over the world that uh, this does open the opportunity uh, for the virus to enter. And that seems to be what happens. So, you, know, you talked about, you, know, you mentioned that the cases might be locally transmitted, but it does seem that the source of this outbreak over the past week or so, uh, it, look, it did begin with people coming into Taiwan from outside Taiwan. So what's it like in Taipei? I mean, this is really centered around Taipei, isn't it? And New Taipei, which is an extension of Taipei, the vast majority of cases in those two um, districts. Um, we we see, see reports of sort of um, panic buying in shops and so on. Have you, you experienced anything like that? Well, there certainly was panic buying um, last weekend when the authorities did upgrade the, the restrictions level or the condition level uh, to something that on the, their scale they call Tier 3, uh, which did require wearing masks in public. So to, to take a step back, that, that had not been required. There were mask requirements on public transportation uh, since last December and for the first part of 2020, but not the second half of 2020. Uh, but, but you didn't have to wear a mask in public, and that was imposed. And the moment that was imposed last Saturday, there was panic buying at supermarkets and online. Uh, I, I would say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, there's certainly less people were out and about. But I think by, towards the end of the week, uh, yesterday and today, certainly seeing more people. Plenty of people are still going into the office. Uh, a lot of companies have, have implemented a partial work from home, but not necessarily a total ban on people coming to the office unless uh, somebody in the office uh, had to go into quarantine. There was an exposure uh, within you know, a certain number of degrees, uh, whether directly or indirectly, to somebody who who's tested positive. Uh, but again, for the most part, uh, companies are operating. Uh, you can still go into most stores, although a lot of eating establishments uh, have switched to takeout only. And, and something else very interesting, uh, to enter uh, buildings, uh, the post office, uh, to get on the bus or public transportation, there is now a, a system where you have to scan a QR code and, and you're, unfortunately, uh, you know, so libertarians might say your personal location information, your phone number, your contact tracing information does get transmitted to a, a central database, although uh, they've pledged to only retain this information for 28 days. So, uh, and is there resistance to that in Taiwan? Because, I mean, here in Hong Kong, we've found um, huge numbers of people refusing to use a government app which doesn't even transmit your information centrally. It just stays on your phone. Um, you're saying that very, the Taiwan very few. More in fact, in fact, the, the perspective on, on that and the way to answer your question is the news, the TV news. They love to find the, the one story, you know, the one person today who you know, tried to go into a convenience store and was refused service because they weren't wearing a mask, and you know. 
the person gets really mad. There's a, a shouting back and forth, and it was captured on the security camera. Uh, but uh, jokes aside, uh, or sarcasm aside, th- that really is few and far between. So for the most part, uh, people here are very cooperative with those uh, requirements. I, th- I think one thing that's also surprised people here was the very, very low vaccination rate uh, in, in Taiwan. But there's the whole question also of the supply of vaccines, isn't there? How does that stand at the moment? Uh, uh, you know, where are they getting to get them from? Uh, how many are available and so on? Well, that, that's been a source of frustration for a lot of people here. And, and that's an, an important part. I'm glad you asked it because that's an important part of the conversation about what Taiwan did well or didn't do well. As I said, it'd be Taiwan's uh, you know, method was simply to have a fairly strict uh, border lockdown starting from last February. Uh, but they were clearly behind other countries in, in, in acquiring vaccines. So they had 200,000 AZ vaccines. They recently got another 400,000, which arrived this week. Uh, but uh, so far, commitments or promises uh, by politicians about when other vaccines or more quantity ha- are going to arrive has not been realized. And uh, I think though, there's going to have to be a political accounting for that uh, maybe after this current period passes about why Taiwan has really failed compared to other governments uh, to acquire a sufficient amount of vaccines. Uh, and has uh, mainland op- offered Taiwan vaccines? Well, that, 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 that's been a source of dispute as well. Yeah, the mainland offered the mainland vaccines. Uh, the, the authorities here claim that the mainland is interfering in acquiring vaccines from the other manufacturers. Uh, my own view is that the issue is more bureaucracy here that, again, compared to other governments, you know, Israel, Singapore, some other places around the world, where they're very quick to make a decision. You know, last year they wrote a check uh, to, to, to get, get their priority in the line to buy vaccines. I think there's just too much bureaucracy here. and uh, They just move too slowly to acquire it. But, yes, there's also a narrative that's being pushed that it's the fault of, of China for blocking acquisition from the Western manufacturers as well. And you've had power cuts as well, or you haven't been affected by the power cuts? It seems to be a bad well, time in Taiwan. You're hit yeah, by unfortunately, COVID and power unfortunately, cuts. power cuts were, were island wide. So even though the problem originated in, in, in a, a power plants at the, at the southern tip of the island in Kaohsiung, um, it, it affected the entire grid, which raises significant national security concerns as well. It's not just an issue of uh, the lights going out or, or traffic lights not working across the island. So uh, that's something the authorities do need to look into once the current period of, of COVID crisis is over. So, I mean, Taiwan's been seen as this incredibly desirable place to live over the last year. Huge numbers of Hong Kong people thinking about it. We even had Hong Kong government officials deciding to stay on in Taiwan to come back. But now you have a combination of COVID and um, power cuts, do you think it's going to dent the gloss a bit? Well, let's not forget we're going into the typhoon season as well, and there's always the risk of earthquakes. <laughs> but but all of these risks, and we have a drought as well. But, I mean, all, all really of these risks have always, yes. always existed. I, I don't think uh, you know, people should look at any place around the world as perfect, and that would include Taiwan. Okay, well, Ross Weingold, many thanks for joining us. Stay safe. Uh, uh, Ross Feingold is uh, Business Development Director at the Safe Pro Group, a travel security consultancy. Thank you very much indeed. Danny, thank you very much indeed. Uh, one more comment from Mike, uh, who says, patients that rush to get the jab might have anxiety about the virus. That seems quite normal for them 
to have anxiety about those that don't jump on the same bandwagon. Social justice. This doctor sounds like Biden. Get your jab to reverse social injustice. That's from Mike. Have a good weekend. We'll be back on Monday. The weather, very hot, apart from a few isolated showers, and there's currently a very hot weather warning uh, in place. Sunny periods during the day. Temperatures up to about 33 degrees. And that looked very hot, apart from a few showers during the weekend and early next week. 31 Celsius at the moment with a relative humidity now of 75%. The Diploma Yijin program is now open for enrollment. It is comparable to Level 2 standard in the Hong Kong Diploma of Secondary Education Examination in five subjects, including Chinese language and English language. The Diploma Yijin is also a Qualifications Framework Level 3 program. It gives you a recognized qualification to further your studies or apply for a job. Visit yj.edu.hk for program details. I'm 32, the news now with Barry O'Rourke. Cathay Pacific says COVID vaccination could become a prerequisite for pilots and cabin crew to keep their jobs. The company said it expects governments to introduce more stringent requirements for crew members who are not inoculated, and it will become more difficult to separate staff who are fully protected by vaccines and those who are not. A ceasefire between Israel and Gaza has come into force, bringing an end to 11 days of bloody conflict that claimed almost 250 lives. Palestinian militants and the Israeli security cabinet have agreed to the terms of a deal brokered by Egypt. And Canada's immigration ministry says its new immigration pathway for Hong Kong residents has received nearly 6,000 applications since it was launched three months ago. The Canadian government eased visa rules in response to the national security law to make it easier for Hong Kong people to live and work in Canada. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven, and our oh so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Right, let's get on it. Good morning and welcome to Friday here on The Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. 1010 today, we're going to welcome back Extreme Traveller. Remember, he of Once Upon a Saga fame, Tor Pedersen. He's still in Hong Kong, but determined to fulfil his mission to go everywhere in the world. Well, due to Covid, he was unexpectedly held up here nearly a year ago. But this is a guy who doesn't give up, so we're going to find out about his latest plans. After 11, Danny Hicks is going to be back to keep Radio Sports presenting down to standard in this week's Sports and All Golf Special today. And after 12, we're off to the movies with our razor-sharp critic, James Marsh. This week, he'll be reviewing Fast and Furious 9, The Woman in the Window, Wife of a Spy and Perfumes. Join us on Facebook Live on and off throughout the morning. (laughs) 